Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Africa can cast a spell on people. Today, both of my guests, Peter Beard and Richard Ruggiero, have attempted to tackle the issues Africa struggles with in very different ways, one with art and one with government policy. When you see the skies of Africa, they are so huge, and you almost look into the eye of God. I can't explain it. There's something that enters your soul. That's Peter Beard's wife, Najma. We're at their house in Montauk having a light lunch. Anybody want anything like water? I, I know those skies she's talking about. I've been to Africa. I went in 1998 and stayed in Natal in South Africa. We were there for two months living in a house on the edge of a game reserve. Just before we arrived, there were two lethal attacks by wild animals in the area. Signs were posted everywhere advising caution. It seemed everyone carried a weapon. I remember an 18-year-old production assistant on the film turned out to be packing a gun underneath his shirt. Africa certainly did feel wild. And here I am, interested in all of it. Peter Beard, 74, was born in New York City. I don't get tired ever. Went to the same schools as his father, Buckley, Pomfret, Yale. His great-grandfather was a railroad tycoon. His grandfather was heir to the Lorillard tobacco fortune. If you go to the Tuxedo Club, there's my grandfather there, Pierre Lorillard, but it's a great portrait. Peter Beard first felt the pull of Africa at age seven when he stepped into the African Hall of the American Museum of Natural History. Ten years later, at 17, he reached the continent with a camera in hand. I've always taken pictures. Since you were a child? Since, the, since before you were born. Right. Since <laughs> you were a child? Yeah. Who encouraged before, you to do that? Well, how did that go? Um, was, photography wasn't a mainstream hobby back then. I did have a very advanced grandmother, my mother's mother, who wanted to buy me a camera. My parents wouldn't let her. Eventually she won, and I got a camera in about 1948, a Voigtlander. Hey, Naj, aren't you going to sit here and criticize me after? Najma, Peter's wife, sits about 20 feet from us. That is, when she's not pacing the grounds or lighting a cigarette or checking on the food being served. But what was photography then to you? Meaning when you started... You know, it was very 
juvenile and like sentimental. I just liked number one how easy it was. <laughs> number two, I was going to school and you graduate and get out and you get pictures of the guys in your class. I got all my group. If you're ever interested, I've got all my albums in New York. Clearly, you are someone who there's a lot of things you could have done. <laughs> right? You grew up in a very, very comfortable family. You look like a movie star. When did things with you with photography really, when did it take hold of you? When did it, it become? Never did. It I, never did? I'm just into subjects and things that are interesting. You can see that in the pictures, right? Right. I don't so really, you don't consider yourself a photographer? No, not if I can avoid it. You consider yourself a writer who takes pictures? I would say an escapist. Right. <laughs> Why? Because I, I went to art school, but I don't like the word art, and I don't like the words, I don't like what's happening in the art world, the Chelsea million studios there. Yeah. <laughs> I like things that are exciting or make you laugh <laughs> or something like that. Was your father artistic? No. No. Did he collect art? Was, was Anson Beard artistic? Peter turned to his brother, also named Anson, who was visiting that day and sitting on a bench behind us. Eventually, Anson would join in the conversation. What did you study at Yale when you went to Yale? Well, and know, did you go to Yale because you because you sound so? I don't know what the word is. Um, uh, what did you say the word was? Crazy. Uh, and that's his wife says volunteered the word crazy. You sound so unorthodox, so I'm assuming, did you go to Yale out of obligation? Was that like a family thing? Well, I was... Or did you want to go to Yale? I was going as a pre-med, and uh, I suddenly realized, <laughs> going into pre-med, and I'd also been to Africa, one, two, two visits, humans are the problem. Right. So imagine being in the business of saving fucking humans. You went to uh, Yale for what? What did you study? Art. Did you finish? Oh, yeah. You I did. graduated. I did uh, history of art, you know, all those things. American studies, and then I went to art school, and I did Joseph Albers in the art school. And, and when you left Yale, where'd you go? Africa. You, so, so you knew? You'd I, been to Africa before, before yeah, you finished Yale? I You'd went in 1955 twice? with Charles Darwin's grandson, by the way. And what was the, the genesis of that? Was your father an adventurer? Or people in your family adventurers in that sense? My father roomed with Woolworth Donahue, and who did the greatest safaris of all with a hunter I've used. Never went, never <laughs> bird, into bird shooting and stuff like that. He was not an Africa file. No, he had, had a salmon river. He salmon fishing and deer hunting, and he was a great guy. But he was not really adventurous. So, I mean, I hate to use this phrase, but who turned you on to Africa? Well, I guess it was 1955 with uh, this Quentin Keynes, Darwin's grandson. We went South Africa, Madagascar, Kenya. It was a damn good time. And what happened to you when you were there? It became an important part of your life. Well, I, I've got a lot of important, not important pictures, no, i got a lot of lousy pictures, but subject matter, you know, rhinos, things like that. Right. But it was my introduction to Charles Darwin. Right. And I think the elimination of Darwin from our school studies and the way he's been swept under the rug is at the root of almost all of our problems. Why? We don't know anything about biology, zoology, ecology, or nature. We are enemies of nature. Don't ever forget it. 
Peter Beard continued to go back to Africa. He made his reputation with a book called The End of the Game, published in 1965, which chronicles the starvation of tens of thousands of elephants and other animals in Kenya's Savo National Park. He had purchased 45 acres in Kenya outside Nairobi and set up what he called Hog Ranch, named for the resident warthogs in the area. I've still got a great place. Peter's photographs in the end of the game stay with you. They are stark. Peter described the African hall at the museum all those years ago as possessing, quote, a darkness you could feel, unquote. The same phrase comes to mind when looking at the images in his book. It was overwhelmingly obvious that this enormous park was being eaten alive by an overpopulation of elephants because they'd had a nine-year anti-poaching campaign. They arrested all the traditional hunters. They were locked up. The population soared, ate the trees, and poaching was used as an excuse to continue raising money. What's the status of Savo now? What are the issues there now? Well, the bush is slowly growing back, but the corrugated iron huts have expanded from villages into little cities. The human touch is, is like a disease. And there's nothing they can do about it? Do you think Africans in Africa? Right. Who's going to do anything? Right. The national parks were pretty much held aside for... for, for uh, accommodation. Right. Housing. Uh, you know, shit houses. And what's the status there now? A population that was around five and a half million when I arrived to over 40 million. Adjacent. Starvation and begging and, and going around the world looking for freebies. Can I get Peter to answer a question? Yeah. At this point, Peter's brother, now with cigar in hand, raises his hand. Speak up a bit. What does Peter think about the fact that Bill Gates has put so much money into AIDS in South Africa while President Mbeki pays no attention? Yeah. AIDS there is really a density-dependent phenomenon. The more of it, the better, frankly. Kenya is now way over 40 million from five and a half. Just think about that. That means nobody lives happily. Everybody's a crook. Everybody is on the make. Everybody's sitting begging outside the American embassy. It's, it just cuts the country right off. You can't, you can't survive population pollution on this level. Now, when you said that AIDS was a density-dependent phenomenon, yeah, and the more of it, the better, your wife was on her feet right away. Well, that's because everybody's very, very sentimental, and they think 40 million Africans is going to do a country good. No, it's not. Peter and Najma met in 1985. All right. What do you want to know? Najma is Peter's third wife after Cheryl Teagues and socialite Minnie Cushing. Peter met Najma in Kenya, where she was born. I'd grown up there, but I was educated in Europe. Right. So when I came back, I met Peter. And how, how much time have you spent back in Africa over the last... You met him in 85, well, we so that's over 20 years ago. Well, we used to live there so a year at a time. A year there, a year here. That's almost 30 years ago. Well, 1985. God. You're aging me. Yes, that's yeah, true. But, but I'm saying, so yeah, it's the, true. It's over that's 25 true. years. So in the past over 25 years, how much time have you spent in Africa during that time? Not enough at all. Not much. But is it, is it safe to say, though, that Africa casts this tremendous shadow over both of you? It You're is both in fairly my obsessed. Soul. It's in my soul. It's, it's the best Africa. place to be, but it's also increasingly diminished. Like right. Long Island. Right. How has he changed in the time you've known him? <clears throat> what was he like when you met him? Uh, 
He was so incredibly, incredibly out there. But I thought of it as totally normal. I thought this was an incredible human being who'd done incredible things. But I do remember this really funny moment. We'd gone to some shrink for some weird reason. I can't remember what it was, but... And Peter left the room to go to the loo. And the chap just looked at me and said, if I were you, young lady, I'd make a run for it. (laughs) (laughs) But you didn't. Why? (laughs) I'm a really stubborn wench. (laughs) That's really it. You're all in. I'm all in or I'm all out, basically. But he's a very colorful character. He's a colorful, exhausting character, yes. That's true. You're married now. And how 25 many, years of bliss. How many children do you have? One. Just one? You had no children prior? I'm not, I'm not really a reproducer. You're not? We no. just have the divine Zara. I have so. said that <laughs> Zara was an accident. I love accidents. In everything I do, I love accidents. And I, people criticize me for that. I, I told him before this interview, if he ever said that again, <laughs> I would literally attack him. What's the matter with an accident? See? Think of Francis Bacon. Sorry, Visual speak. works. I tried. <laughs> looking for accidents. But you were a famous, uh, uh, what's the word? What should I say? What should I call it? He was a famous Liberty, what? Liberty, womanizer. Thank you. You were a famous libertine, people say, and you, yet you, you, number three lasted 25 years. How did that happen? What's the difference? Well, you learn, you get better. Yeah. Picking something. You're better picking. You get you a, picked better. You pick better, and uh, then you just get in a sort of prayer position and go forward. Yeah. So in an age where people in the modern world, I mean, the world is divided between people who don't know you at all, people who know you as a photographer and the, the writer of these books and this adventurer and so forth. They know you as a famous socialite, if you will. They know you as all these things. And then there's young kids who surf the internet who know you that you're the guy that got crushed by the elephant on YouTube. He did. Yeah. What was different that day from any every other day? That day we were out there, we had no security, no gun. It was 1996. Peter was helping a friend who was opening up a safari camp. We were basically on a picnic. We'd done the, a promotional uh, shooting. Suddenly, like 15 elephants came over the hill. A cow herd, you know, like they are. You don't get bulls that at that stage. And uh, it was on the very edge. It's just it's another population story. It was on the edge of Tanzania, Kuka Mountain. And um, elephants come in and grab a cabbage at night, and they get shot. So I'm sure this is a, a herd that had been shot up, but they were very skittish. So they take the bullet and keep moving. They don't go down. They just shoot them to scare them. No, they take the bullet and move. Yeah, it doesn't do any harm. Doesn't hurt. Well, the way they shoot at night, you know, big black thing there, bam, and you just have a lot of wounding. Um, And this female gave us a demo, which is totally normal. We ran back. I was in long pants, early morning, wet grass. The elephants went back up the hill, so to speak, and we just stood there. The sons of bitch, this matriarch came again. So then she starts coming. We start running again, make it feel happy. But it wasn't stopping. <laughs> and uh, I lucked into the elephant on an anthill. And the thing just head butted you. 
Well, no, no, no. It was right many the, things. I was up in the air and down, and uh, with the guy with the you. camera took off. I think we'd run far enough so that it knew we weren't dangerous. The herd came around. The herd was you know, sniffing. <laughs> it was actually almost worth it. Uh, <laughs> that should have been the title of the book. Yeah, almost worth it. I was completely blind, by the way. My optic nerve had been bounced off. I couldn't see a goddamn thing. I had a huge hole in my leg. It went right through here. And my hip was broken in seven or eight places. At this point, by the way, in the interview, I want to mention Beard is hiking up his shorts and showing Especially me, wore his and showing me uh, in the innermost portion of his thigh, uh, the closest area to his actual personality itself is this hideous gash, this hole in his leg. So anyway, there was an amazing gaping hole. And there was no blood coming out, by the way, but I couldn't see it. I got splintered hips. I don't. I didn't get speared because I couldn't see the thing. And um, but did you think when that happened? Did you think that was it? Did you thought? And did you, did you, did when you I was running, moment, yeah. You thought you thought that was it. Well, you can't escape an elephant. <laughs> you thought that was the end. Yeah. And I, did you think how romantic? No, I thought. The poor little Zara. I just finished her book. <laughs> um, no, I was just felt like an idiot. So then how long did it take you to recover? You were, you, were, you were flat on your back for months, correct? I bled out going into the hospital. It was about four hours to get to the hospital. I eventually had to be flown to... I see. That's, that's, that's good. What did you just say? No roads. No, ro- no roads. So the man who complained that roads have ruined Africa <laughs> is the man who's sitting there going, no fucking roads here. It was a very bumpy little ride, I'll tell you. But even in your, in your way... And yeah, I mean, you, you don't seem like somebody who's eager to take a bow for this or anything else. But in your way, through your work, I mean, through art, through photography, do you think that you've been responsible for some of the uh, uh, the good that's come there in terms of casting a light on that at all? Truthfully, I know nothing at all. No positive result. I know lots of people look at these, but they don't even see that there's a starvation scene. They see ivory. They think, oh... Peter's brother Anson speaks up again, hmm? saying he's heard him described as a conservationist. I'm for conservation, but it's mostly a con. That's the trouble. It's sentimental. Buy an elephant a drink, a lion an acre. So some of them have to die. Well, the way humans are spreading, right. the whole lot have so got the, to go. So the answer is limiting human development. You've got to get. Of course, right. Population pollution is the key. And that, that, that's the thing. But I, I, I'm afraid it's partly due to Hitler. You can't talk about population dynamics. You never hear the word, do you? You never hear pecking order. You never hear any of the words that relate to all the struggles that are going on there. Because we have decided not to talk about any of the realities. But it's do-gooder conservation. It's sentimental horseshit. What we're talking about, in essence, is, is changing human behavior. Richard Ruggiero is chief of the Near East, South Asia, and Africa at the Division of International Conservation at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Africa called out to him, too. He joined the Peace Corps in 1981. He was placed in the Northern Central African Republic. Richard spent most of the 1980s and 90s living in Africa, and he doesn't see things that differently from photographer Peter Beard. Richard Rogero has spent over 30 years in conservation. 
His dissertation from 1989 was on the plight of the African elephant, a problem he's still trying to tackle. You know, I could describe it that if, God forbid, what was happening to elephants were happening to people, we would call it a massive genocide. Right. They're being exterminated for ivory. On a mass level. Correct. Using the latest technology, and that's weapons, cell phones, sat phones, vehicles, aircraft, helicopters, and the ease by which massive amounts of ivory can be illegally shipped to markets has never been greater. And it is primarily for ivory. It's an ivory-driven market. Primarily. You know, certainly there are some of the other uses uh, as well. Well, bushmeat. People eat elephants. In, in what regions of Africa do they eat elephants? They don't export that meat, do they? Not really. Most of it is consumed either in rural villages, but increasingly and, and more disturbingly, it's exported to cities within Africa. The problem there is that it produces a market that's very, very difficult to satiate. Is it labeled as elephant meat when it's sold in more, in, in yes. more urban well, markets? It's, it's not labeled so much as you go to a market stall and the meat's there and the person selling it will tell you what it is. It's fairly obvious to look at it. So people in African society, not just impoverished people, they eat elephant meat and that's a food staple to them. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the impoverished people who eat elephant meat opportunistically, sporadically, is nothing new about that. And a lot of people would say there's nothing wrong about that, given a, a sustainable level of offtake. The problem here is that in some cases, there's an additional inducement to eat elephant meat. Number one, it's a bush meat in many places. I'm speaking primarily of Central Africa, where you, you ask the question, where does this happen most? It happens all over Africa, but mostly in Central Africa at this point. You say Central Africa. Are there governments there that condone this more and encourage this more than others? No. Who are the, the culprits? I, I, I wouldn't say that they openly condone it. It's just by negligence or inaction, it effectively causes the problem to be worse. There are some countries that are very, very good at it and make really good earnest efforts. Such as? In Central Africa, Gabon is clearly a leader a very progressive president who might be the greenest president on earth. Ali Bongo is his name. And um, the system, the ethos, the government, and many people, even down to villages, are very supportive of the concept of sustainable offtake or respecting laws. It's not a perfect place. The problem there is poachers are coming in very well armed from across borders, and they're killing elephants at an incredible rate. So Gabon is working very hard on that, and that does contrast with some countries who either lack the political will or, maybe this is more important, lack the capacity to do anything about it. Now, um, the idea that Kenya and areas like that, which are probably the most well-known, I would imagine, I think that the people have who have that romanticized Isaac Dennison, you know, Peter Beard. Yeah, Meryl Streep and Redford getting on a train together or mm -hmm. getting on a biplane together. That's not the highest concentration of elephant. No, no, but um, well, certainly not. Well, how would you not. describe the, percent, the, the populations in Kenya now? Um, receiving increased pressure, that's a manifestation of the great symptom. The symptom is poaching. The symptom is habitat destruction. The disease is something else, and I think that's what Peter Beard alludes to. What do you think it is? Well, it's a human-induced problem. 
Nature has some problems that people are not responsible for. I mean, you can talk about volcanoes, um, tsunamis. Um, people aren't responsible for that. But many of the problems that nature, the wild wildlife experience, are at the hands of man, to coin a phrase. So the problem is basically people's attitudes about wildlife in general, about elephants specifically. It's a function of short-sightedness. It's a function of um, apathy. It's a function of greed. And it's a function of human numbers. Is it fair to say, and I, and I, I don't have a sophisticated analogy here, but would you put poachers, even with their high-powered weaponry and satellite phones and, and uh, uh, aviation equipment and so forth, would you put them in the category more with like people who were making moonshine during prohibition and it's more of a kind of a ragtag bunch, it's not that sophisticated? Or are they more the equivalent of Mexican drug lords who are actually controlling the regions politically and killing the political leadership that opposes them and terrorizing them? How sophisticated is poaching in Africa in terms of its political power? Both exist. The unsophisticated, the poacher who maybe has a fabricated shotgun or uses snares or poison, and that still exists. It's been the case for a long time. It's the relative proportion of poachers. It's the predominance now of these more sophisticated, more aggressive, frequently militarized poachers that's happening. And that's what's causing this chronic problem that we've seen. It ebbs and it flows, but it has gotten dramatically worse in recent years. It's a result of, as I say, the market for ivory and the ease by which it can be obtained in technology, guns, helicopters, political background, indifference, those points come into play. Is it fair to say that, that in Gabon, where Ali Bongo is having some degree of success, what's he doing and or not doing that's leading to that success that other places it's getting by them? First, a country or an individual or an institution needs to be aware of the problem. And I think, you know, the problem is becoming very um, conscious in the minds of the public. Certainly, politicians um, in Africa are aware of the problem. The next step is the political will to do something about it. And the third step is having the capacity to act on the political will. Well, Bongo has the political will, and he is developing, and that's what my organization, Fish and Wildlife, helps them with, is to develop the capacity to deal with the problem that the awareness has brought to everybody's attention. So the answer to your question succinctly is, he's aware of the problem, he's willing to do something about it, and he's mustering the capacity and the wherewithal to actually do it. When was the first time you were aware of Peter Beard's photography and his work there in Africa? What was your response to that when you first saw that? I was first aware of it. I think I lived in Kenya in the late 80s. We knew that Peter was out in Hog Ranch, and um, occasionally you'd see him across a crowded room at a at um, some sort of function, but um, I never had close contact with him at all. We just lived in the same place, the same country. My reaction was that he is an artist, and he is doing some fantastic... I, I was first just physically attracted to the beauty of his photographs and how he put together his books. But thinking about it farther down the road, I mean, I, I was struck by almost... Quaintness isn't the right word, that it was... Um, a reflection of a, of a time that was fleeting. I, you alluded to Isaac Dennison and the Hollywood images of what 
Kenya was like. Certainly Peter's work had a great deal of that sort of nostalgic feel, very, very beautifully presented. But to me, there, there's a great function in that. And, and the great function now, decades after he produced his, his main book or his, his uh, artistic um, displays, the, the photography mainly, is it shows what was. It, Peter's work is a, it's a zeitgeist. It's, it's a representation of what things were in the 50s and 60s in Kenya. And by contrasting that, we can see how far things have gone. Mm-hmm. And that enables us to predict the future mm-hmm. or to foresee it or to anticipate it. And if we can't do that, we can't deal with it. We have to be proactive. That's the secret to conservation. You have to anticipate the trend to be able to proactively deal with it. And Peter's book really gives us that that sort of nostalgic or that retrospective view that's very helpful to us. Yeah. When I look at his pictures, it's almost like he's Frederick Remington. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's my point. You know, it's just from an artistic standpoint, it's fantastic stuff. But as I say, as a historical perspective and, and a reminder, it's it has a function as well as just an aesthetic value. But for the sake of this program, if you had to give it a word or a phrase, how bad is it right now? Uh, my 32 years of experience of watching it very closely, this this is a nightmare. It is unbelievably bad, and, and we've been seeing it accelerating in that negative trend. So once again, it's it's the rate of change. What's the hot spot? Where is it really like out of control? Central Africa. Right. What country? The Western Congo Basin, where there's still a lot of elephants, really getting hammered. DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is so degraded already. For example, Ian Douglas Hamilton estimated 350 to 400,000 elephants there in 1980 when he did his big continental survey. There are about 12,000 left now. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much the end of the game there for elephants. But farther in the Western Congo Basin, Gabon is an example. The Republic of Congo, that's the smaller one, there's still some elephants. They've been greatly reduced, but they're still populations that are meaningful. How, how, many, in, how many are in Gabon? Oh, that's hard to answer. Um, Would you guess rough, Roughly 50,000. Right, so there's in the tens of thousands. Sure, there's one park called Minkebe that has probably twice as many forest elephants as the entire DRC. It's a place that the poachers know. Um, just received a report yesterday by the, the um, echo guards who are out looking at it. And despite massive intervention by the government of Gabon, there are still big pockets of poachers. So this is, this is a problem that, sure, great to point out that there's political will in Gabon and that they have a motivated National Parks Agency. But when you're up against the scale of the problem, the intensity, the, the danger of running into people who aren't just going to run away when they're confronted but are going to stand and fight, this is a whole different dimension. So... The answer to your question is, how bad is it? It's horrible, it's terrible, and it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the political situation there? What's the government situation there? Well, DRC has been challenged by civil war for decades. Let me put it this way. It's easy to see how the government can be preoccupied with more urgent needs. Sure. That, that must be the constant problem in some aspects of that world. Every country has to have priorities. When you're talking about putting your limited ability into saving people's lives versus saving elephants' lives, well, there's an obvious priority there. When you're there, 
when you're when you're dealing with the people there, are you encouraged by the amount of people, the percentage of people there, native people who care about this issue and you think are really willing to take action, or are they in the in the minority? Well, it depends on where you are and how you ask the question. I mean, that's I lived with them for years, but. You ask them the questions, how do they feel about elephants? Um, what does living alongside of elephants mean to you? What do you need to um, do things that are good for that coexistence? And the answer is highly variable. In some places, elephants don't really mess with people. They stay separate, and um, that's the way both elephants and people prefer it. In other places, agriculture tends to is tending more and more as it expands to get into traditional elephant ranges. And so that that interface is now very obvious. And usually when people and elephants uh, are in conflict, elephants lose. Um, first people lose their crops and mm-hmm. sometimes get trampled. And that's, that's yeah. very serious. It's tragic. Yeah. But eventually the elephants get bullets. Yeah, people love deer in Connecticut until they eat your flowers. Then they want them shot. Sure. So, you know, th- it, it would be a similar thing if you were to ask somebody who's apple crops are being destroyed by deer, what do you think of deer? And they're going to tell you that they're not very pleasant neighbors and they're bad garden pests. On the other hand, somebody who isn't affected negatively by them can relate to their aesthetic value. Africans can do that. Many of them are very proud of elephants. It's a part of their culture and their heritage. But living with them is costly in a lot of ways. And sometimes there needs to be an incentive, and the disincentive is enforcing the law. And frankly, while that's very important, it's only a short-term solution that really doesn't get to the crux of the issue. The crux is what we're talking about, and that is the attitudes of people and their willingness to coexist with large animals that compete with people for water, for space, or in some cases are more profitable to them dead than alive. So sure, it's, it's an economic calculus, but it's not quite that simple. There are also values, pride, etc. One of the things that Beard said, which was more all-encompassing on this theme of the sentimentality of the conservation movement was, uh, you know, that evolution has to be allowed to take its course in Africa in all ways. And, and, and then he said that, you know, that AIDS was a blessing on the African continent, that you know, something has got to happen there to reduce that population. And do you find that in Africa, of course, they don't have an economy that compares with that of the United States. Few places do. But do you find that what's going on in economic policy and social policy and agricultural, you know, food, energy, things that they need for their human population to survive and to develop, uh, are those so bad that uh, that it's understandable that the elephants are going to fall by the wayside? In some places, um, all of those factors help. In some places, they're a net negative. You know, Africa is a big, diverse continent, and certainly there are examples of how all of those factors can work to the favor of the natural system. And there are certainly examples that in their absence or when they're poorly applied, when economic development or agricultural policy or all of the things you mentioned, forestry, you know, Central African forests are being cut to provide hardwood for international markets. So, 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 so be making people aware of boycotting that market would be a, a step. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say boycotting is, is the right term or the right approach. Right. It's, it's being an informed consumer. It's, sure. it's about having... More manageable stewardship. Of manageable stewardship, certification, but real certification that actually works and is transparent. This is not news to anybody who's, who's 
thought or spoken about these things, but those practices are not yet perfected. Um, we have an idea that those tools can be applied very well, and, and many of the things we're talking about are tools. Development as an incentive for conservation is is certainly known, and it has been practiced, but it's still, it, it's a work in progress. Um, sport hunting, for example, can be an excellent tool to motivate and to derive financial benefits to people who have to make sacrifices to live with elephants. Sport hunting of what? Of elephants, of, of lions, and the very controversial subjects, of course. Some people think elephants should never be hunted because they are extraordinary animals. Other people think of them as being subject to any economic um, motivation or initiative. So there, there's a wide spectrum of views that sort of get more into philosophy and ethics than anything else. Well, what are your personal feelings about that? My bias is I've lived with elephants for years and years. I studied them for my doctorate. I took considerable risks to um, study them and certainly to keep them alive, so I'm very biased. To me personally, shooting an elephant for fun, for entertainment, is not cool. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't deny the fact that other people find that okay and that there can be benefits from a well-managed system. Look, if what Peter is saying is that wildlife needs to be managed, then I think he's correct. Elephants need to be managed. So do people, in essence, not the same way, obviously. But as the world becomes more crowded, it's incumbent on all of us to think of ways of making room for us all and not to sacrifice something like the African elephant because of our short-sightedness or greed. I'm speaking of humanity's short-sightedness or greed. So that's the challenge. Why do you think people, I mean, in the United States, where uh, Americans are sadly... Uh, as obsessed with their cable, telephone, internet bundling charges more than they are with the fate of uh, species of animals around the world. Why should Americans care about what's happening to the great wildlife heritage in Africa? It comes down to valuing elephants, their existence, what it means to the world. Is the world a better place with or without elephants? Because that choice is being played out passively, admittedly. But by our ineffectiveness or our inaction, we're moving toward a time when elephants are so greatly reduced. If it matters to people that such remarkable creatures, products of creation or evolution as you choose, is the world a better place or is it greatly diminished by the loss of these animals? In my opinion, um, the world is a greatly diminished place. The quality of life on Earth is diminished when we lose key important things. There's a very practical function that elephants provide. They have a ecological value. They spread seeds. They dig for water. They expose salt-rich soils. In their absence, Things change. Mm -hmm. You can call it evolution, but it's not a natural one because it's being caused by the problem we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So there is an aesthetic value to the world. There is a practical or an ecological value to the world. And in some cases, there's a, um, an economic value to the world. And all of those things count. A, a quick thought. Think about where the North American bison was uh, at the turn of the 20th century. There are probably more 
bison, admittedly in their altered form, in North America now than there are elephants in Africa. And what does that mean? It means that people's attitude toward them, maybe it's because rich landowners want to see the natural fauna and therefore make the sacrifice of dedicating their pasture land to them. Maybe it's because they like to eat beefalo. Um, But whatever the motivation is, bison have a value that justifies their populations going from a few hundred back in the dark days to maybe half a million. That says something. It's, it's not an identical case. It's sometimes dangerous to compare across taxa and across continents. Mm-hmm. But I think the concept is clear that unless people value elephants aesthetically, practically, ecologically, unless they value them, people will cease to have a motivation to preserve them. You remember what Bob Dylan said on uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues? You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows? Sure. Okay, well, you know, I have a scientific background, and science is the basis of everything we do, and it needs to be there, and it needs to be good science. But at the point we are now with what we're talking about, it's about people and understanding them and how to deal with their desires, their, their characteristics. And that's what we're focusing on, and that's where a great deal of the hope is. You know, people are the problem, but they're also the solution. For more information on Richard Bruggero, the decimation of the elephants in Africa, and what you can do to help, visit heresthething.org. You'll also see photographs by my first guest, Peter Beard. It was overwhelmingly obvious that this enormous park was being eaten alive by an overpopulation of elephants because they'd had a nine-year anti-poaching campaign. They arrested all the traditional hunters. They were locked up. The population soared, ate the trees, and poaching was used as an excuse to continue raising money. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. 
If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.